All right, <clears throat> good to be together once again. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. <clears throat> I sent you an email on that. I hope some of you had a chance to give a little reflection to this beautiful chapter. We got broken up with Easter and so forth, but we, we've talked about a number of things. Uh, <clears throat> one, we've... <clears throat> We've seen that the task Jesus puts before his disciples is to demonstrate unity, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. That's John chapter 17. <clears throat> this is part of our, our job description, if you will. You say, well, the job description is to disciple all the nations. Yes, that's right. That's what the risen Jesus says. But the question is, how do we disciple the nations? And the framework that Jesus gives us is the framework of demonstrated unity so that the world may believe. <clears throat> we saw that this unity is grounded in the unity of God himself. Thinking about how the, the God who exists is one but yet three. That gives us some clue to how the Bible understands unity. It, it is uh, unity in diversity. It's not uniformity. And we've thought about that from a number of directions. Todd uh, spoke to us about this idea of truth and how truth plays into unity. And that can, be a, that can be a tricky matter, has been, over the centuries. And uh, what we've come to is this idea that as disciples, we agree on the absolutes or the, the great dogmas of the Christian faith. But we grant each other freedom to disagree on lesser matters. And that's this idea of keeping the main things the main things. And unfortunately, uh, Christians easily get into what I call the, the mountains out of molehills syndrome, that we get caught up in details that we disagree on and we tend to elevate those details to matters of uh, higher importance than they are. And that gets us into trouble. Uh, <clears throat> in the area of truth, then, unity allows for diversity of opinion. Even in this chapter, we're going to look at it uh, about love today. There's lots of places to have divergent opinions. That's all right. And then we noted in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, last week that diversity also involves different temperaments and talents that are given to us. So if we think of the, the image of the body of Christ, well, a body, Paul says, isn't just an ear. It's not just an eye. You've got to have hands and feet and all the rest. Uh, but what that then does is bring in this whole difference of temperament and evaluations and priorities, the things that make us so diverse, 
but also raise tensions for us, huh? Because, because who I am and the way I do life, I can easily absolutize and say, well, that, you know, that's how, that's how you need to operate as well. But unity is not uniformity. All right, so that's, that's where we've been. Today, we move into this uh, powerful chapter, one of the most beautiful sections of the entire Bible, just from a literary standpoint, uh, but also very, very powerful, which is one of the reasons I'm hopeful that over the next couple of weeks, you'll spend some time not just reading it, but thinking about it and praying about it. Paul calls it the most excellent way. And uh, it appears right in the middle of this discussion of the diversity of gifts. And he's already talked about that in chapter 12. He's going to come back to it in chapter 14. But now it's all of a sudden he throws the brakes on and says, uh, but beyond this discussion of gifts and how we're different and all that, let's talk about something that is really more fundamental and more important the most excellent way that we can live together. So I'm going to pick up with the last verse of uh, chapter 12. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first paragraph of this chapter and the third paragraph, and we're going to leave the middle paragraph for the next couple of weeks uh, because that is where the, the heaviest detail and the most powerful teaching comes. So let's, uh, let's look at those two uh, surrounding paragraphs. To do that, let's begin with a definition of love, just so, we're, just so we're thinking together. So here's a general definition that I, I think works. Love is the desire for or attraction to an object that is seen as good, valuable, or desirable. A desire for an attraction to an object seen as good or desirable. Scripture uses the word love for lots of different things. Of course, for people. Love for God, that's, uh, that's high on the list. That's the top. But uh, there are other kinds of loves, and, and not all loves are... Uh, endorsed. They're not all valuable. You can love things. You can consider things as good, valuable, or desirable that in fact are not so. So scripture talks about those who love evil. Or we can love things that don't, uh, don't merit it. They're not that important or significant. So but love is that attraction, it's that motivation towards something, and, and in a Christian sense, the kind of love we're thinking about is love as a desire for God and for what God himself values and loves. What does God value and love? Well, he values all that he's made. He values the, the created world around us. But the chief of his creative love and design is the human race. God loves people. He values them. And so the love that Paul is going to talk about and that Scripture broadly encourages us to is the love which is directed toward God and being like Him, but then loving what God loves. And that means certainly loving people. Jesus summarizes that kind of love in that double command, right? The first commandment is love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's love in the Christian sense. But notice we're talking about about a motivation that leads to certain kinds of actions. In the middle of this chapter, Paul will tell us about all kinds of things that love either does or does not do, specific kinds of action. But love is the motivating force. Love leads us to that kind of behavior. And we'll think about that more when we consider that middle paragraph. For now, let's look at paragraph one. And, and then the final paragraph. In paragraph one, Paul is really talking about the indispensability of love. It's this question of motivation again. Why do I do what I do? 
even when I'm doing the right thing. Huh? It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong motivation. And that's what he wants to talk to us about in this first paragraph. Why do I do what I do, even when I'm doing good things? Do I do it out of a sense of obligation? Well, yeah, okay, I have, I have to do this. People expect this of me. Do I do it out of pride? I want to, uh, I want to demonstrate what a superior person I am. So I'm going to do whatever it is, a good thing probably, but, but I'm doing it so that I can think well of myself. Do I do it out of a spirit of competition? I know that you may be doing the same thing, but I want to demonstrate that I can do it as well or better than you can do it. That's the question of motivation. Why do we do it? Well, Paul says, if we do anything, including things which are right and good, even exercising the spiritual gifts that God has given us, because this is following up on chapter 12, right, where he's talked about the body with all the diversity of gifts. He says, to each one of you, the manifestation of the Spirit has been given for the common good. So the exercise of gifts is a good thing, right? But why are we exercising those gifts? And and Paul says, if we do it without love, this fundamental motivation in which I'm drawn toward God and knowing God more deeply, and then I'm drawn toward those things and those people that God loves. If I'm not motivated by that, then there's a problem, because love is the absolutely indispensable motivation. And he makes that point in a number of ways. He says, look, Uh, suppose I speak in tongues. Now, one of the big discussions, apparently, in the the church of Corinth was the practice of speaking in tongues. And we're not going to get into that with any kind of depth. Uh, We don't need to. But it's clear that Paul saw tongue speaking as a good thing, he says in chapter 14, he thanks God that he speaks in tongues more than any of, they, of those believers do. So it's a good thing to speak in tongues. But Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, there's one of those questions people differ on. Is he speaking hyperbolically there, saying, you know, if, if angels have a particular language and even if I could speak or does... Does he think that tongue speaking is really a reflection of angelic speech? It's not clear. We don't have to solve that issue. But Paul says, no matter how I speak, motivated by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, 
speaking in tongues, but if I do that without love, and that's evidently what was happening in the church at Corinth, then he says, in fact, I've just become an irritating noise. I'm a clanging cymbal. I'm a loud, harsh gong. I'm like I'm like your neighbor who thinks that Saturday morning when you want to sleep in, that 7 o'clock is a good time to run his chainsaw. <laughs> what better time? And what an irritation. Paul says, I, I can just be an irritation with my spiritual gifts. Or, he says, uh, suppose, verse 2, I have the gift of prophecy. And this is, this is the gift that he is really going to endorse in chapter 14. Suppose I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Or, what if I have a faith that can move mountains? It seems that Paul understands the gifting of chapter 12 to include special gifts of faith, abilities to believe God for extraordinary results. Now, we're all called to faith, but it it appears that he sees special manifestations of the Spirit of God given to certain believers to trust God and to believe God for great things. Faith that can move mountains. Jesus talked about that kind of faith, didn't he? Well, suppose either then that I have this great discernment and I can speak and explain the mysteries of God or I have this extraordinary faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love as the motivating factor. Well, then Paul says, I've become nothing. I I may not... I may not be nothing in the evaluation of other people, but Paul's talking from God's standpoint here, huh? It, it is uh, it's probably worth noting here just how powerful this statement is. See, he doesn't say, if I can do these things, if I have such faith, if I have such deep, profound, prophetic understanding, uh, He doesn't say it counts for nothing. He says, I've become nothing. That that seems to be a a more striking statement, doesn't it? I'm a zero in the divine estimation from the standpoint of my function in the body, right? Or verse 3. Suppose I give all I possess to the poor. He may be reflecting again on on the teaching of Jesus. Uh, Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And... and, uh, Jesus said, well, you know the law. Well, I've kept the law. Okay, then go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and be my disciple. 
Paul says, suppose I give all I possess to the poor, and beyond that, I give over my body to hardship. Or some of the old, older translations said, I give my body to be burned. There's a textual variant there. But either way, it's something extraordinarily physical and sacrificial that Paul's talking about. Suppose I do that along with sacrificing my possessions. But I don't have love. What does that say? Well, Paul says, there's no profit to that. I gain nothing. That's pretty devastating, isn't it? That without this central motivation, I become an irritating noise. I become a zero in the divine evaluation in terms of what I bring to the body. And personally, I gain nothing out of it. Even though the things Paul talks about are all good things, we can do the right things with the wrong motivation. And Paul says, don't bother. Don't bother. You may well do more harm than good. Now see, that's, boy, that's challenging because I was raised to think that the the most important thing was, was to do the right thing. And a lot of you were raised that same way. Do, do the right thing, whatever. <clears throat> Well, doing the right thing is really good and important. But isn't Paul saying here there's something more than that? There's doing the right things, but doing them with the appropriate motivation, which is love for God and love for people. Love is indispensable. And as we think about being the body of Christ, united together, serving together for the sake of the world, this is the motivation we need. Now, from that, uh, you know, let's, let's refresh ourselves. Love, in the Christian sense, is a desire for God and for what God himself values and loves. So then Paul will talk about the characteristics of love. We'll look at that next week. But after that, he goes on to this concluding paragraph where he talks about love as ultimate. It's not only indispensable, but it's ultimate. Love is what lasts. Spiritual gifts, he says, are temporary. And Paul wants us to think not just about the temporary, but about the permanent. Spiritual gifts are temporary, and he talks about that in a number of ways. Somehow, 
this thing is extra sensitive today, or my thumb has become amazingly powerful. I don't, don't know just what it is. So he says spiritual gifts are temporary. They are, in fact, designed to function only until completeness comes. Or some of the older versions there say perfection, until that which is perfect has come. So that has raised some debate among people. I think it's very clear in this passage that completeness or the perfection that Paul's talking about is what transpires when Jesus returns. That's, that's the perfect. That's what is complete. And spiritual gifts have this temporal limit. They are only for the present age. Paul uses a number of analogies to help us think about that. Maybe in part so that we don't overrate the spiritual gifts side of things. So, <clears throat> part of what he says is, uh, you know, there's, there's a difference from the present and the future, which is one of maturity. It's the difference between a, a, a child and an adult. He said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child, maybe like this child, see? My plan is to start crying at 3 a.m. for no reason. And he, he kind of looks like the kid that would do that, too. Some of you may have had children like that in the past. But Paul says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways of thinking and speaking and acting. And so as he looks to the future, <clears throat> the contrast between the present and the future is one of great contrast in spiritual maturity. We're going to become spiritual adults. Or another way he talks about it <clears throat> is uh, to use the image of a mirror. It says right now we see in a mirror, uh, hazily, darkly, but then we're going to see face to face. And the, the mirrors that he's thinking about are not modern mirrors with, you know, silver plate on the back of glass and very sharp, crisp images. It's really just burnished metal. So you can see in it, but you can't see the details as well. Maybe our best analogy is is the fogged-up mirror in the bathroom. You, you kind of know it's you there, but you don't want to try shaving in that mirror. You're going to have trouble. Well, Paul says, currently we see in a mirror, but one day we're going to see face-to-face. That's completeness. Spiritual gifts are for the present. Spiritual gifts are in this time of fogginess. N.T. Wright has a beautiful image. He says that, that scriptural statements talking about the future are like, fine, uh, like uh, signposts pointing into a bright mist. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. So we see a blur, but one day we'll see face to face. So Paul summarizes it this way. There are three things that remain, he says, faith, hope, and love. 
they remain in contrast to the things that will pass away, including spiritual gifts. I think he's saying, it's another debated issue, but I think he's saying faith, hope, and love are all part of eternal reality. That faith will be that ongoing disposition to trust God and to rest in him that will carry us right through eternity, that will never be inappropriate to the people of God. And hope will always be that expectation for a bright future that God will continue to bring about. And that never disappears either. But of those three, the one that abides and is greater than the other two is love. Love's not only important now, it's forever important. And so that's why I need to spend time in this chapter, and especially then next week as we look at the that central section where Paul describes the type of life that flows out of love. I hope you can give some time to uh, reading it, praying it, reflecting on it, and we'll, uh, we'll take a look at those things next week. Well, let's pray, and then we'll sing a song. Lord, when I look at what Paul says here and think about what love calls me to be, I just feel so small and inadequate. I do feel like the the child who thinks, acts, and speaks like the child and who desperately needs to grow up into a different way of behaving and thinking. And I suspect, Lord, that every one of us as we read this chapter can feel those sensitive places in our lives where we don't, we don't speak in love. We don't act in love. And uh, we want to ask that you would be working in a fresh way in our lives over these next weeks as we give our attention to what is most important for you. We want to see unity within the body here at Grace Bible Church. And we thank you, God, for what you're doing. We, we want to be full-fledged participants in what your spirit seeks to bring about here. So we give us help. We give us attentive ears, attentive hearts, that we may do your will. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.